Don't pay retail for your diamond engagement ring or gift. Come to CleanOrigin.com. Founded by a leading family in the diamond industry for more than a century, we're experts in lab-grown diamonds because that's all we do. Clean Origin, the only diamond jewelers who give you a 100-day, no-questions-asked return on your purchase. Head to CleanOrigin.com or one of our retail stores and mention code RADIO10 for 10% off your purchase. That's CleanOrigin.com, code RADIO10. I do not come upon my podcast guests, my fellow conversationalists, the usual way. Um, so I I just kind of ask around and see who I bump into, and there's this kind of, you know, fortuitous spirit about it. So a friend of mine a number of years ago who was active in the yoga world introduced me to a woman named Caitlin Lacey, who was herself kind of a a yoga aficionado. She might have been a teacher. And it turns out she's also a bookkeeper and a very good one. So I was talking to Caitlin Lacey. She's at booksandstrategy.com. And because she and I are together in a, in a business group called The Squad. So we were getting to know one another, and I got to know her daughter, who was homesick from school that day. And she said, you really need to talk to my mother. I said, okay. And she said, yes, she's written a book. She did uh, interviews, and one of the interviews was named one of the best podcasts of the year that year, one of the interviews with my mother. And I was like, okay, no pressure there. It's already, she's already done a book tour and been named one of the best podcasts of the year. And um, I said, well, I'm game, but the way I do interviews, I just, you know, I'm off the cup. I don't, this is not NPR. This is, you know, I just want to engage people and hear the, hear the material fresh. I just want to focus on listening and drawing out the stories and not on question, answer, question, answer, interrogation. And it turned out pretty well, I got to say. And there's a lot in it. There's a lot in it for writers and also for the material, uh, which is absolutely riveting from the beginning to the end. So thank you, Caitlin Lacey, for introducing me to your mother, this week's guest, Kathleen Murray Moran. You, you don't just get over grief. It stays with you your whole life. You learn how to deal with it differently. This is In Her Words, a podcast from manlisting.com, featuring one man listening to the stories of real women in their own words. In Her Words, a conversation worth hearing because every woman deserves to be heard. Hey there, and welcome to In Her Words, the podcast. I'm Stuart Watson. As we enter our fourth year, a new podcast every week, all during COVID uh, and beyond, most of them face-to-face. This week, we talk over Zoom to Kathleen Murray Moran, author of Life Detonated, the true story of a widow and a hijacker. And... We start and spend a good deal of time in her youth, in her growing up, um, abjectly poor and living in the basement uh, of an apartment in in the Bronx. And from the beginning to the writing to the going to college to the, it's an unlikely story. And she's, I got to say, my hero, Um, not to mention... Uh, which the widow of an NYPD cop on the bomb squad who died in the line of duty from a terrorist bomb, which was also on 9-11, but a 9-11 long before the famous 9-11. Let's let her tell you. Kathleen Murray Moran. Where were you born? Bronx, New York. For your mother, your number what of how many? Four of eight. Right in the middle. Right in the middle. When you're in a family that big, 
and you're in the middle, do you compete for attention with with mom, dad? You you compete with everyone. You compete for attention, for food, for toys, for anything you want. It's a struggle. And we were um, we were a poor family, single mother. We lived in a basement because we couldn't pay rent. And she worked for Horn and Hardart. I don't know if you remember that. No, um, what was that? It was a restaurant in Manhattan. Um, but she worked there so she could bring home food. Could she bring home enough food for the whole family? She could and did. Did they mind that at all? Well, they had to get rid of the food at the end of the day anyway. I get you. So you guys had like leftovers. Yeah. Did you ever do without? Mm, I never remember being hungry, but we sometimes had dessert for dinner or breakfast or whatever it is you could bring home. Where was your father? He left when, well, she threw him out when I was, I think, six. I don't know. Why'd she throw him out? He was an alcoholic. Mm. Did you ever meet him? Did you ever get to know him at all? I met him, but I hated him, so <laughs> Did all the kids pretty much feel the same way, or did some of the older ones have a different experience? I think the oldest one had had his attention. She looked like him. She was black Irish with black hair and blue eyes. Um, and she, she seemed to be fond of him. I don't, I don't know if she loved him, but he was a hard person to love. What did dinner look like? We would have to, my brother and I, who was three years younger, would have to go to the train station and meet her so that we could carry the bags, the shopping bags with the food. And we would just take all the food out and take what we wanted. Everybody would come in and take a plate. You know, they had a, they had a restricted menu. So that's what we got. Baked beans, chicken, mashed potatoes. <laughs> How about Christmas? Christmas, she had a brother who was reasonably well off compared to her. Um, and so they would, they would come with, you know, big bags of gifts. And I didn't know this at the time, but she would just take the tags off of them and put them under the tree and say they, they were from Santa. I love it. When do you remember first thinking to yourself, we're poor? I wanted to go to kindergarten, and and the school was right across the street, so I could see the kids. And my mother just kept saying no. I was old enough, um, so I asked my sister, "Why won't you let me go?" And she said, "Because you need clothes. You can't. You only have torn pants or whatever it was I had. I didn't have the clothes to go." But my sister wound up getting some clothes for me. They were inappropriate, <laughs> like, you know, frilly skirts or whatever. But I didn't care because I wanted to go to school. So I did. What did school represent for you? I think it was a drive to show everyone that I was smart. And I could read. And I wanted to show off. Not too much changed. <laughs> How did you learn to read? Uh, my older sister would read to me. And what kinds of things letters. would she read? Um, she read The Good Earth. Not baby books, but she would read. Pearl S. Buck. Pearl S. Buck, yep. That's the one that stands out anyway. So that's quite a lot to read. To a five-year-old, <laughs> but you know, this it is, taught this me. It's not that Dr. We, Seuss here. No, we didn't have those. 
Um, we only had what she could take from the library, but um, it taught me that there are people worse off than me. Is that school still there in the Bronx? Yes. Yes. It is? Was it a PS or was it a... a PS 75. And it's still there. The building that we lived in was torn down, but the school is still there. How is the neighborhood different now? Well, it was mainly Jewish back then. Jewish, Irish, not so much Italian, um, maybe a little Hispanic. And very middle to lower middle class. And do you ever go back to the old neighborhood? No. No. Well, I live in North Carolina. So. Yeah. Yeah. But even when I was younger, um, you know, when when I was five, the Bronx was um, on the low end of the scale. But as I grew a little older, it got worse. Hmm. And it was a very dangerous place to be. And, you know, so as a teenager, there were gang wars and shootings and, you know. Does that mean that you had to stay inside or you had to go elsewhere to like a park or someplace that would be safe? Did you have to get on a get on <laughs> a train or the worst place you could be? No, I mean to a park somewhere else. Oh in the city or somewhere else out on Long Island? No, I didn't even know Long Island. I didn't even know where it was. Did you know where Jersey was? No. So you were limited to the Bronx. We were limited to where the bus or the train could take us. So we shopped in Manhattan, not because of anything other than the Bronx didn't have many stores. And the train was 10 cents, and it was right down the block. <laughs> Which line was it? Uh, the IRT, number seven. Did you ever go to see the New York Yankees play in the Bronx? All the time, because I went to Walton High School, which was the same line as the Yankees. So the Yankees were at 161st Street, I think. So on the way home from school... We would get off the train and stand there, and you could watch the game right from the subway platform. You could see into the stadium. Right into the stadium. So you wouldn't have to buy a ticket. Nope. And you could hang out with your friends. We all did. We loved the Yankees. What type of student were you in high school? What, what really lit you up? What did you enjoy? Well, I could write. So I did better in the writing field. And then I took secretarial skills, shorthand and typing, so I could get a job. Was there ever a teacher who put their arm around you and said, I think you're really talented at writing? Not until I went to college. How did you get to college? I didn't get to college until I was 30. And I was so what did you do between 18 and 30? What happened when you reached the age of 18? I went to work. Whereabouts? Manhattan. What kind of jobs? Um, I started as a secretary and moved my way up. Administrative. What was your experience? You know, so often people are invisible. You know, no one looks at them. They just look at them as like you'd look at a typewriter. What was your experience of being in those kind of secretarial positions at the time? Yeah, I was a typewriter. So the one job, the last job that I had in the city, um, I worked for a British um, and Irish linen company. Mm, import. We imported Irish linen. Uh, my boss was British, but he, nobody liked him because he had a bad temper. And so when I interviewed with him, he said to me, how fast can you take dictation? And I said, well, how fast can you talk? <laughs> you know, and it wasn't to be you know, funny or anything, but 
I wanted to know. <laughs> it's like, I know how fast I can go. How fast he said, well, you're hired. So he was the first person who told me I was bright and intelligent. And so we actually shared an office. It was a big room, big glass windows. And he would bounce ideas off of me. And he, uh, he taught me much. What was his name? Harry Banks. Did you remain friends after that? We did. Remained so, friends until he died. Where were you living when you were doing these jobs? Well, I, when I got married, um, I was working there. I moved to Brooklyn. And what did your husband do? He was NYPD. Was he Irish Catholic? Of course. There were a lot of Irish cops at the time, right? Well, he was in the Air Force. And when he got out, in, in, he was in Vietnam. And he was a bomb technician there. And it wasn't what he set out to be, but, you know, they sort of put you on your path. So when he came out, he was recruited by the NYPD. And so he, he went on the bomb squad. And he stayed there until he was killed. In the line of duty? In the line of duty. Um, did he talk about Vietnam very much? He talked about the kids. He loved those little kids. He would buy Hershey bars and bring them to them. Um course he didn't couldn't really talk to them but he had a whole drawer full of pictures of his little friends and he knew what he was doing might kill them and it it just broke his heart yeah. how did you meet him through a work a woman that i worked with she set you up no, she knew his sister, and we went out one night, um, and he happened to come in. And she said, oh, I haven't seen you in a long time. Where have you been? And he said, well, I was, I was in Vietnam. So he looked at me, and he said, I'm going to marry you. <laughs> I didn't even and know. And what him. did you say? <laughs> I said, I don't think so. <laughs> What did you like about him? He knew how to love. And I didn't. Because it was I didn't come from a loving family. But he was very considerate. And very understanding. Where did you go on your first date? We went to a restaurant in the Bronx <laughs> during a snowstorm. What did he do that showed you he was considerate? So he came to pick me up, and it was a snowy day. And that afternoon, I was looking for my camera, and it was missing. So I went to my brother, and I said, where's my camera? And he said, I hocked it. So I hit him. He's older than me and bigger than me. So he went to hit me back, and I put my arm up to protect myself, and he broke my arm. So I had to go to the hospital. This is in the afternoon. <laughs> and get a cast. So when he came that night, I was a wreck. With the cast on, I couldn't get clothes on. <laughs> but he didn't even ask anything until we got to the restaurant. He said, so tell me what happened <laughs> with you. He didn't have a negative opinion. He said, can I cut your steak? Can I you know, do this for you or that for you? It just made me feel at ease. That's lovely. It made me feel... Pleasant, I didn't because of course I just wanted to cry. I was in so much pain. Here was my first day with someone who said he wanted to marry me. <laughs> I was like, and I'm in a cast. My hair is all frizzy. 
I didn't wear what I wanted to. But he was cool with the whole thing. Don't pay retail for your diamond engagement ring or gift. Come to CleanOrigin.com. Founded by a leading family in the diamond industry for more than a century, we're experts in lab-grown diamonds because that's all we do. Clean Origin, the only diamond jewelers who give you a 100-day, no-questions-asked return on your purchase. Head to CleanOrigin.com or one of our retail stores and mention code RADIO10 for 10% off your purchase. That's CleanOrigin.com, code RADIO10. This is very intimidating for me because when you talked about your book, it was named one of the best podcasts. <laughs> and so uh, I, I don't think I'm going to be able to duplicate that, but I want to understand. Um, and mainly selfishly, I want to understand the process and the life of a writer who's been very successful. Um, so let me back up and just ask a couple of things. Um, how did your husband die? He was killed um, by a terrorist bomb. Which one was this? It was a bomb placed in a locker in Grand Central Station. What kind and of terrorist was this? Did they ever determine? Oh, yeah, they, they caught them. They were Croatian, husband and wife. They hijacked a plane and left a bomb in the locker. They wanted their manifesto published and to let Americans know that Tito was taking away their language and their culture. So this was long before the war in the former Yugoslavia. What year was this? 1976. Hmm. Was this Caitlin's father? No. Okay. So you did not have any children by him? I had two children. Oh, so Caitlin has two older uh, half-siblings. Yeah. Um, so you were a single um, mother with two little ones. They were two and four, and I was 27. And I had no clue what to do. So the one thing I had always wanted to do was to go to college. So my mother came to live with me. And I started college. And the first class I took was English. And that teacher gave me an A. And she said, you know how to write. What, was her, was, what was her name? Oh, I wish. I, oh, Weinstein. Hmm. Which college was this? C.W. Post, Long Island University. So I went four years, graduated magna cum laude. Then I got in, then I, I wanted to keep going. So I went to Stony Brook and tested into the doctoral program. So I skipped the master's and went right into doctoral which saves you a few years. What kind of books did you really love reading and writing about, deconstructing and learning about? What type of literature really appealed to you as an undergrad? Um, you know, as an undergrad, I studied journalism. So not that I didn't read, but it wasn't my primary source. Um, since I could write, I wanted to be a writer for maybe a magazine, a newspaper. Uh, but then I thought it was really practical because I had two little kids and I couldn't just go into Manhattan all day and leave them. Did you read The Post, The Times, The New, Yorker. Newsday, the New Yorker? I love their cartoons. I love their, <laughs> their stories. I love well, New York. You know, a New Yorker. Who did you say that that's no mere report, that's a narrative? Well, my favorite writer was Hemingway. Mm. And the reason that I liked his writing because it was so succinct, there wasn't an extra word in there. He knew how to be concise. 
And I thought that was that was the secret of a good writer. Because when I got to um, Stony Brook, when you're in the doctoral program, you have to teach as well. So I'm getting these papers with, you know, unusable words because you didn't need to say 20 things to make your point. You maybe could make your point in three words. So I used him as, I used his ideas. I stole from him. <laughs> but All I great artists Joyce. are thieves. <laughs> you know, James Joyce, who was unreadable to most people. I studied him. I studied Yeats. I studied Faulkner. So all that time, I had been writing stories about my family called Fail Street. That was the name of the street we lived on. And they were mostly stories of violence. And I I wanted to publish, but I didn't want to publish all those harmful stories to my family. You know, they wouldn't have wanted people to know. So I was teaching right after 9-11, and I assigned to the class, right where you were, what happened to you on that day? You know, just just pour it out. And so they did, they wrote, and I thought, I wonder if they would, what they would think if they knew my, my 9-11, because that was the date that he was killed. Oh, my that word. Yeah. So I couldn't talk about it. I never talked about it. It was somewhere deep buried in me, because if I had to talk about it, I would get nervous and get upset. So I never wrote about it didn't discuss it. I didn't have plaques or badges or police things around the house. Nothing. I couldn't, I don't know, I was just too sensitive to it. But that day, I decided I would write something. And so I sketched out what happened. So at the end of everyone reading, and they were emotional, and um, the woman sitting in front, saw that I was writing, and she said, read us what you wrote. So I actually had to sit on my hands, not to shake, <laughs> to read about this. And I read my outline, and the whole class was silent. And she said, oh, my God, what a story. And I thought, that is your story. Your family is your story, but this is your story. And this is a phenomenal story. Because what happened was the police department would not tell me what happened, how the bomb blew up, how he was killed. So when one of the hijackers who was in prison in California wrote to me, and she said, if you write to me, I'll tell you what happened. So we started a correspondence that lasted three years. And this is maybe... 12 years after she was in prison. So she was due, due to be released, I think, in three more years. And she asked me if I would write to the, um, the board and get her out. And so I admired, in some very, very strange way that's not... <sighs> It doesn't transform into words, but she had a huge impact on me because I never processed Brian's death. And through those letters, I was able to. So I, I thanked her for that. I mean, I know she was involved in putting the bomb and uh, in his being killed. But anyway, she, I, I wrote to the uh, corrections board and I got her out. And she flew to New York, and we met. And I understood right away that I made a big mistake, that she manipulated me into doing this. And one of the other reasons that I did it was because one of the Bomb Squad members, 
who I thought made the bomb go off, who detonated the bomb, because his hand inside of his face was blown off. He had been going to all of her parole hearings so that she wouldn't get out, both she and her husband. So I did it out of spite. Plus, she told me she had divorced her husband and that she was on her own. So we had lunch, and she said, I have to be honest and tell you that I remarried him. And that that just sent me off. And she said, you know, we had no choice. We had to do what we did. And, you know, I said, of course you had a choice. You could have gone to the newspapers and done something other than put a lethal bomb in, in Grand Central Station. So she said, well, before you go, I just want to ask if you will write a letter for my husband to get out. <laughs> and I said, absolutely no way. Have you been to therapy? <laughs> I know this isn't your typical <laughs> story. Um, yes, I went to therapy for many years. Um, whether it was therapy or whether it was this letter writing or whether it was writing the book, what did you find most helpful and most healing? Once I put my emotions on the page, I was able to leave them there. The first chapter of the book was when the department came to the door to tell me that he had been killed. And when I read, when I wrote that first ch chapter, it's a lot of tears and a lot of wine. And I, I wrote it over and over and over until I thought, whoever reads this is not going to look up is going to stay on this page until the chapter is finished. And that's what it gave me. So I felt, I felt able to keep going and more and more put down my personal feelings. I wrote everything. And then I just um, edited it down to the things that I wanted in there. Did you have an editor you worked with? To begin with, or I am an editor. <laughs> yeah, but even Robert Caro is not his own editor. I mean, when uh, when I was published, and and I got an agent. It took me a long time to get an agent, but she sold the story in a week. And that publisher, they give you three months to revise. She sent me back eight questions. She said, I can't believe it, but I just have a few questions here. And that was it. The book was, was done. How, how long did it take you to get an agent? About a year. When you were in the midst of writing, what is your process? What time of day? Where are you? And do you write by hand or did you type? Or So I always wrote in the morning. Um, like how when, early? Um, seven o'clock. Probably I'd get up, get my coffee, start writing right away. And I wrote by scene. So it wasn't like I had a whole trail of a book and whole outline. I didn't because I had three stories. I had my family, I had the crime, and I had the, the hijacker. So it was a struggle for me to breed all of that together until I found the common thread, and the common thread was hijacked. So we all hijacked at some point in our life. So every chapter has something to do with hijacked. It doesn't say it, but when you finish reading the book, you know. When did the book come out? Uh, 2017. And um, how many readings would you do? Would you go around and do readings? In the beginning, my, my agent was from um, Huntsville, Alabama. <laughs> so we did a tour of the South. 
And one thing stands out for me. We were in um, F. Scott Fitzgerald's museum house. And there was a gentleman in the office. He was very young. And I kept, he kept looking at me. And so in the end, I said, can I ask what your reason is for wanting to listen about this book? And he said, oh, because I'm a librarian. And I said, oh, am I going to be in the Montgomery Library? He said, no, the U.S. Army Library. Wow. Because, of course, Huntsville is home to Redstone Arsenal. And that's where every bomb squad in the United States learns how to be a technician. So, of course, we did go there. And um, I learned a lot from going there. They told me a lot. It's a city. It's as, it's as big as, I don't know, Manhattan probably, because um, it's an army base. And, um, and they told me about how to make bombs. And then there was a group of chemists who came to listen to me talk about my book. So it's, it's outdoors, and they're on a stadium. And I, I'm on a mic, and I'm talking to them. And suddenly a bomb blew up. And I, you know, I jumped. I got so nervous. And they started to laugh. And I said, what is, what is funny? And they said, we're sorry we didn't tell you, but Friday afternoon we blow up everything we've been working on for the week. And so let's go down there and we'll show you. So we went down to the place of detonation. And they allowed me to um, set it up. And press the button and say, fire in the hole. You know, and see this thing blow up. I blew up toilet paper. <laughs> what was the last time you saw your husband alive? On TV. So they, um, they filmed him coming out of Grand Central with the bomb. It was on a long pole. It was a pot. And so he was on one end. His partner was on the other end. And I saw him put the bomb in the truck and then get in and drive away. That was actually the 10th of September. He worked four to 12s because I still worked for Harry Banks part-time. Four days a week from eight to two. I would get home by three and he would leave. So... We didn't have a babysitter. It was the two of us taking terms. And had you ever written a book before this one? I wrote I wrote stories, and I had some stories published. Fiction? No. No, I never what, wrote fiction. What kinds of uh, journalism did you write? Um, small town newspaper. That was my first journalism job. I went around finding stories, you know, that boring kind of thing. Yeah. Did you find writing this book more helpful than therapy? Did it do some things for you that therapy could not? <laughs> when my therapist read the book, she said, had I seen this, had you written this when you were younger, when you first came to me? You would not have needed therapy. There's a lot of folks, there are books written about healing through writing. Even people who are not even competent as writers, who are not nearly as accomplished and studied as you, who have no talent at writing. Writing, there's something very, very powerful about taking a pen and getting it on the page. Right. Can, can you... Talk more about that. Speak to even because a lot of people don't write because they immediately criticize what they've written and say, my writing is, I'm not Hemingway. You know, I'm not F. Scott Fitzgerald. And so they don't write. If they're, if they're not Susan Sontag, they don't write. And I think that's a shame because there's something just about the pen and hand that is healing it's it's restorative can you can you talk about that some more well i had of course i taught writing 
for many years, 25 years. And everyone has a story and everyone can put that story down on paper. Free, just putting your ideas down, free writing, not worrying about um, sentence structure or spelling or grammar or anything. And when I taught, that was the last thing we addressed. First is the story. What do you want to say? And then you start at the beginning. So let's take one scene of whatever it is you want to talk about. Could could be, you know, a novel, whatever it was. And just write down your idea. No order. No, no worries. And that's the way non-writers should start to write without worrying about criticism. And I never used a red pen. You would just go back and X things out and then rewrite. Did you work with a word processor, typewriter, by hand? How did you work? Um, I wrote a lot by hand. If my students were writing, I was writing. <laughs> so <laughs> I wrote a lot at work. Um, Is there a reason you write by hand and not with a keyboard? I, I did both. Then I would come home and type it in. What did you discover from editing yourself? What What does a good editor do? Well, I, I entered a contest um, for memoir. It was by Huffington Post. And the, uh, the prize was you would be published by Simon & Schuster. So there were 300 contestants, and I won. So I got... This e- was email from Rita, Tom Hanks' wife. Mm-hmm. Got her last name now. Right. Who said that I had written the most um, successful of all his stories. So they wanted, they were going to publish my book. My book was about. 200,000 words. They said, you have three months to make this 150,000 words. Now, in the meantime, I had published some stories with Salon.com. You ever hear of that? It was like sure. Newspapers. Um, now, the, the rules for Huffington Post was no part of this submission could have been previously published. I took that to my attorney, who was my friend. I said, this means what I submit to them to win. Right. Okay. So in the meantime, my salon.com story became their number three story of the year. So they republished it. Someone from Huffington Post saw it. And they said, you're disqualified because no part of your book. I said, well, that's not the wording. It said, you know, no part of this application. So anyway, I edited my book down to 150,000 words and then lost anyway. So I, I back up to that because that's what an editor can do can squeeze out the best of every sentence. Did the NY, did you ever do readings in New York? Did you ever do readings? uh, Did the NYPD ever, did you ever hear from, you know, guys who were on the force with your husband? Um, It was maybe 40 years after my husband was killed. So not too many were still in the force. But when my book came out, um, I was very friendly with the president of the PBA. Um, And I gave him a copy. And he read it. He said, 
I want 500 copies. And I want you to speak to the conference up in Albany. I'll send a car for you. So I went up there and I spoke to them about the book. And then I signed 500 copies in one day. But your hand was sore. You know, each person that came up to me had something to say. So I had a little break in between. So then I, I did the South, Alabama, um, Mississippi, Tennessee, all those states. Then I went to California. And I did from Laguna Beach down um, to La Jolla. And then I did, of course, New York. And then you have hear of um, John Edward? Yes. He's a psychic? Yes. Right. So his agent called me and said, um, he wants you on the show. He said, I gave him, you know, like usually the... Um, the agent will read the book and tell him what it's about, and he'll do the interview. But when she told him what it was about, he read the whole book. And so when I got there, he said, I want to talk about one thing, grief. And I want to know how you went through your grief. And he said, it's very important to retaliate. It doesn't have to be in you know in, in a in a mean way or a violent way, but you have to feel some vindication. Did you ever do that? And I thought about it and I said, yes. Um, a writer for the New York Times called me and said, Did you know that Julie Busick is an ombudsman at the UN for the Croatian government? I said, how could she work at the UN? She was convicted. So I said, I'm going to get her fired. So I did. And he said, yes, that's it. But, you know, I told him, you, you don't just get over grief. It stays with you your whole life. You learn how to deal with it differently. In the beginning, when I started college, I would get in the car and I would cry from the minute I got in the car until I got to college. And then I would wipe my tears and go about my day. And this went on for a long time. And then one time I got to college and I realized I forgot to cry. I said, okay, that was my first step. How old were your boys when their father died? Two and four. Um, so probably not many memories. Um, how did you explain to them what type of person their father was? Well, they knew he was a hero because when you die in the line of duty, you know, it's, it's, it's all out. They take care of everything. They, um, they call on the children, they bring them gifts. They tell them how important his father's life was. They, they were aware that their daddy was a hero. Absolutely. Um, and I, I wanted to interrupt. As a matter of fact, we had a street naming in the city. Um, so Bleecker Street, Bleecker and Charles, was renamed Brian Murray Way. So my oldest son, Keith, made a speech um, at the street naming. There's maybe 500 or so people there. But what he said was so important. He said, I grew up with two fathers, one who was spiritual and who looked over me, another one who taught me how to be a man. And so I thought that was the most beautiful tribute to both the men in his life. Absolutely. That's lovely. Um, what Were there some people who had lost someone maybe in 9-11 or in other terrorist 
strikes, not just bombings, but other types of terrorist violence, who really gleaned something from your story, even though the circumstances were different. Okay. Um, so when, after I met my husband, Jim Moran, um, he asked me to marry him. So this, this was five years later. And I called the police department. I said, I'm going to get married. I want to tell you, I'm going to change my name. And the, the officer said to me, if you marry, you lose your pension. And I said, oh, no, that can't happen. How will I raise my boys? They said, well, this is Albany. This is not New York. So I got together with two other police widows. And it must have taken us one year to get in to see Mario Cuomo. But I wrote down all of our grievances. So when we went to see him, he couldn't believe it. He said, you're going to lose your pension? That's crazy. No. Um, so he passed a bill called um, COPS. And then that bill gave us scholarships, monuments, psychological hearing. Then they paid. And I even told him, you know, the last widow had her, um, her funeral in Brooklyn and the burial in Staten Island. And everyone who crossed that bridge, she had to pay the toll for. I said, that's a shame. You should be ashamed of yourself. <laughs> so they, then now they would pay for all the funerals and all the expenses. So as a founder of SOS, as we called it, Survivors on the Shield, I knew every single widow and became very friendly with them. Yeah. And so I imagine in a lot of these readings, people would come up to you and they would want to tell you their stories. Yeah. Well, that I encourage can, that. Yeah. It can also be overwhelming. I've learned. Learned what? I don't what? have to sit on my hands anymore. Yeah. You don't shake when you do readings. No. Yeah. No, I did a reading the other day at the library here. Uh, this is a small town. Sure, I live in Southport by the ocean. So we have Lovely. a little tiny library. And I was kind of concerned, I'm only here three years, that I wouldn't have a lot of people that show up. Well, it was standing room only with a group of people outside the door. <laughs> so I, I talked for an over an hour. Um, I don't use notes or anything. Um, when I first started, started giving talks, I asked my therapist, how can I do this without a knot in my stomach? And she said, well, how did you stand up in front of the classroom? I said, well, I, I had a lesson plan. She said, well, there you go. Make yourself a lesson plan. So that was it. Has anyone talked about making a film or even a documentary? So I went to Hollywood. <laughs> I was invited. Um, and they were interested. And they told me that Bradley Cooper loved the story. Um, but this kind of thing takes many years. So it's not something that I'm waiting for. Did they option it? Nope. I didn't option it because the option would have been, you know, a piddling amount. So I kept the rights. You want to write any other stories? I want to say yes, but I probably won't. What interests you? Here I say writing. <laughs> Um, I run different book groups. I play golf. Uh, I love this community. It's a few minutes from the ocean. We have everything here. And I feel retired. Caitlin's always trying to get me to do things. 
you know, why don't you, you know, do teach kids to write who are in grammar school, whatever. So because I've done it all, I did everything that I ever wanted to do. And that, that's a great place to be. What did you learn from your mother about being a mother? Pay attention to my children. She didn't even know what school I went to. She had no idea what was going on. She had too many children, too much stress. Her father, she was first generation Irish. Her father married her off to a man 12 years her senior, who she hated, and he beat her. And so she she really never had anything. And now, is Caitlin your only daughter? She is. Married to a good dude, has a lovely, lovely daughter of her own. Yep. So that matriarchal lineage, there's something of the Irish in that little girl. Very She's Irish, smart. South African, and Dutch. <laughs> oh, yeah. And she she also, she loves language. She goes to multi-language school. She's counting to 10 and 20 and 30 in Arabic and in Chinese. And she's she's quite something. She, yeah. she doesn't realize that all kids don't do this. Yes, that facility for language. That's lovely. If we got struck by lightning today and the only thing that survived is this little piece of digital audio, what is your legacy? My children, my successes, my sons are, are both very successful. And my daughter, she's just so kind and loving. My children are so good to me. Think you had a lot to do with that. I hope I did. Plus, I have four wonderful grandkids. So life is good. Thank you so very, very much. You're very welcome. Kathleen Murray Moran's book, Life Detonated, Life Detonated, the true story of a widow and a hijacker, is available wherever most books are sold. It opened to really good reviews all around from the readers and also from the press. And um, man, very well written, very well written, a page turner and, and an inspiration. Kathleen Murray Moran, thank you so much for spending time. It's very meaningful, very meaningful to get to know you. And thanks, Caitlin, for introducing me to your mom. In Her Words is a production of the Queen City Podcast Network in cooperation with Balto Creative Media. Allison Andrews at Andrews Creative, Rachel Clapp Miller and Roshonda Pratt are developmental producers. Sally Higgins at Higgins and Owens tries to keep us legal. Our music is A Day at the Park by the group Pictures of the Floating World. Your announcer is Catherine Smith. That's me. If you like what you hear, please subscribe and take a moment to rate and review. It really helps others find us. If you love us, go to our Patreon page at patreon.com. Look for Man Listening. One word, no spaces. A small investment makes a big difference in lifting up the voices of women. A huge shout out and thank you to everyone who has supported manlistening.com. In her words, the podcast and my new venture, Voice Locket. Voice Locket. Take a look. Thank you for your support. We believe one voice can change the conversation. Thanks so much.
Don't pay retail for your diamond engagement ring or gift. Come to CleanOrigin.com. Founded by a leading family in the diamond industry for more than a century, we're experts in lab-grown diamonds because that's all we do. Clean Origin, the only diamond jewelers who give you a 100-day, no-questions-asked return on your purchase. Head to CleanOrigin.com or one of our retail stores and mention code RADIO10 for 10% off your purchase. That's CleanOrigin.com, code RADIO10.